Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 190, Good King Richard. I have mentioned the Agora Podcast Network many times, and this month's featured podcast, should you choose to accept it, is Alison Gerlach's The Unapologetic Capitalist. The podcast is all about building a business, so if that's what you're trying to do, you can find it in the normal places, or go to unapologeticcapitalist.com. And so we come then to the brief rule of Richard III and the debate and confusion continues, much as it has done over his assumption of the throne. Once again, we seem to end up in dichotomies. Richard has to be one thing or t'other. Either he has to be an evil usurping spawn of the devil who probably also had serious body odour. Or he has to be a noble, a talented man that left you with a faint scent of of Rosewater. So the Tudor historians were in no doubt about the answer, as you'd expect. Any good Richard did was purely from desperation. Polydor Virgil's phrase drips with innuendo. He began to take on hand a certain new form of life and to give the show and countenance of a good man and so might merit pardon at God's hand. To spell it out, Virgil is saying Richard was just putting it on, playing to the galleries. He was an evil little tick, really, just trying to kid us that he was a nice bloke. Later historians often take a similar, if less extreme, line, emphasising Richard's desperate need for acceptance and support but devaluing the qualities he might have shown as a ruler, effectively implying that what we see in his short reign was not truly a product of the man, 
but of his situation, and that we can't really know what Richard would have done if he had assumed the throne without controversy. Had, for example, all the heirs in front of him happened to die in a tragic and public encounter with a particularly vicious rodent like a rabbit or something like that, for example. Equally, the historian Charles Ross notes that there's also a tendency for Richard's supporters to rush over to the other side of the boat and to try and absolve the lad of all his sins, to wash his soul completely free of any stain. Now, I'm only a bloke in a shed, and I cannot even begin to claim the expertise of these blokes. But it does not seem to me to be necessary to have these extremities. I, for example, am perfectly capable of nipping into the shops without paying the requisite parking ticket. And yet I do not consider myself an evil person. I accept this is possibly a trivial analogy. Richard is accused of doing worse things than not paying his parking fines. Though that is, of course, one of the accusations that is laid at his door. My rather laboured point is that there is plenty of evidence that Richard did good things, in all likelihood from perfectly honourable motives before 1483, and there's no reason why he shouldn't have wanted to continue on that line as king, even if, as a king, he needed to wash away the accusations of usurpation and murder as well. So, for example, to establish Richard's credentials, there seems no reason to doubt that Richard was a pious, religious man, possibly rather in excess of the standards of the day, actually, and that he exhorted the clergy both before and after becoming king to do right by their flocks. He carried to the throne a powerful reputation for good governance and the provision of justice from his beloved city of York. He'd already shown an interest in fostering centres of learning, having made provision for the education of priests at Cambridge in 1477, for example, well before he and his wife Anne endowed King's College and Queen's College respectively in 1484. His courage in warfare is accepted by all. He shows a concern to look after the less powerful of his acquaintances through gifts and annuities, for example, to the servants of his childhood, which really wouldn't offer a particularly good return on investment for a cash-strapped king looking to bind people to him. These were the people, after all, that weren't going to make a massive difference. Now, I have to sneakily admit now that I don't personally buy the idea of Richard as the noble saviour of the throne of England after an honest discovery of the illegitimacy of his nephews. Not sure that I've fessed up to this yet. I buy the idea of a man with firmly and deeply held belief in his own fitness to rule, a conviction politician, if you like, who felt he could do this job as well or better than any of the available candidates. A man nonetheless capable of enormous ruthlessness when required, who was presented with an opportunity to take the position and had morals too flexible to resist the temptation to assume the position that he felt born for. I can't see him as a purely good man, whether or not he killed the princes. To have thrust them aside as he did, young and blameless as they were, was not the act of a man who put morality before either politics or personal gain. 
but I am perfectly willing to believe that he genuinely believed and thirsted to improve the lot of his fellow man and subjects and be a shining example of kingship, a man with motives higher than simply a thirst for power. But hate him or love him, Dickon of York was not in an ideal place right now. Suppressing the rebellion of 1483 had seemingly lanced the boil, but the pus... The pus was still seeping around the body politic under the skin. Nasty metaphor, sorry. And however you want to characterise his reign, whether as a desperate search for support or the glorious start to a reign that would have been glorious if not cut short, you cannot deny that it was a reign desperately short of trust and stability at all levels of society. So, Richard had a shopping list, a to-do list. At the top of this list was the need to establish a credible, impressive and hopefully optimistic narrative of his kingship. He had to put something in place of the bile created by his accession. Now, there's nothing very radical about Richard. That narrative would have to be described by his coronation oath. To bring justice to his people, protect and enhance the glory and righteousness of his church in honour of God give his people a sense that things could be better now that he was here. So he needed to project confidence, solidity. And there was a negative as well as a positive aspect to this. He needed to clear away the constant reminders of the unpleasantness of the last few months. And Edward IV's Queen, cooling her backside on the altar of Westminster, had to be one of those. While the message was important, the practical considerations of power were also critical. He needed support from the people, from the gentry, the church and his magnates. He had to broaden the base of his support. He had his loyal men from the north, but that would not be sufficient. In all of this, Richard wouldn't have felt the job beyond him. Largely, his magnates appeared to have accepted him. The majority of the ecclesiastical lords appeared to have accepted him too. Now, Rotherham and Bourchier had accepted him with grave reservations, clearly, and Salisbury and Ely were fled to Tudor. But outside of that, there appeared to be no issue. And then he had to deal with the enhanced threat of Henry Tudor. Now that Henry appeared to be a credible alternative at last, or at least the only alternative, he had to be dealt with. So this week we're going to give Richard a bit of time in the sun. Everybody needs some time in the sun, don't they, to be stroked and told they're just great, don't worry. Well, let this episode be about that. About what Richard did do that bolsters his claim to be the good king everyone said he could have been given time. Richard, as we've remarked, took the effort to tour the country in 1483, not just the south, as had been increasingly the case for English kings. And this was something he continued to do throughout his reign, he is relatively little in Westminster compared to most kings. As he toured the country, Richard spread a message that actually, despite the efforts of the Tudors, has survived through to this day. The idea of good King Richard, there to deliver justice for all. Here's the announcement he put out as he travelled round. Every person that finds himself grieved, oppressed, or unlawfully wronged, do make a bill of complaint and put it to his highness, and he shall be heard, and without delay have such convenient remedy as shall accord with his laws. For his grace is utterly determined, his true subjects 
shall live in rest and quiet and peaceably enjoy their lands, livelihood and good, according to the laws of his land, which they be naturally born to inherit. Here then, in a sense, is Richard's charter and his chance to implement and begin to create that positive sense that things were getting better, that he was a king worth supporting, came with his first and indeed only parliament. Writs were sent out at the end of 1483, and the new parliament under their new king constituted in January 1484. Now this parliament is really the central practical piece of evidence we have to judge Richard on, given that so much else of his reign was about clearing up the mess and dealing with Henry Tudor. Now, I had an argument on the interweb with someone about the independence or otherwise of parliaments. His point was that they were just a bunch of lords and their clients, and essentially they do as they're told until later centuries. Now, of course, I took issue with this. Plenty of kings had run aground on the sandbank of taxation, quite apart from parliaments like the good parliament of Edward III or the resumptions forced on Henry VI and IV where they were forced to take royal land back from the grubby mitts of the friends they'd given it to. But of course I see his point. The parliaments are generally compliant. And it has to be said that the Wars of the Roses are a good example of parliamentary compliance. They really don't rock the boat. After all, who knows who'll be in power next week? Define, just tell us what you want, where to sign. But there were exceptions even so. Parliaments don't grant taxation easily. And many of the bills and petitions are led by the members every bit as much by the king, in fact far more so. So I'm trying to make two points here. Firstly, kings recognised that it wasn't even worth trying to get a grant of taxation unless you had a really good case or were fighting a foreign war. And even having supposedly terrified every lord in England by his usurpation, Richard didn't even try in 1484 to get taxation. And secondly, the Lords and Commons of England were an active part of the legislation that came about in 1484. Nonetheless, it is a fair bet that the Parliament of 1484 was compliant and designed to be so. Parliament's presentation of their Speaker to the King was a pretty clear signal they would do as they were jolly well told. The Speaker of the House they proposed was the Cat, William Catsby. Catsby was as close to Richard III, as it pretty much it was possible to be. This was no Peter de la Mer of the good Parliament of 1376, who had fought so hard against the Lords to establish a reform programme. Catsby had profited enormously from Richard's success, and in a few months his rise had been meteoric. He came from a reasonably straightforward background and was a lawyer probably about 40 years old. He seems to have come from Buckingham Stable, and become a go-between to sound out Hastings. Under Richard, he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, a royal councillor, and after the fall of Buckingham, acquired large estates and grants from his new master, Richard. So he was very much the new man. And so Catsby's announcement by Parliament as their Speaker was a pretty clear signal, a bit like your dog lying on his back and asking for his tummy to be tickled. Unless a grant of taxation was wanted, of course, when it might turn out to be an attack dog, after all. The 1484 Parliament has the reputation of a reforming Parliament that set the stage for a number of innovations. But let's start with the business end, establishing Richard's right and dealing with the rebels. 
the inevitable bill of attainder went through on the nod. You're probably all up on this by now, of course, but just to clarify. The bill of attainder was the main thing that punished the rebels by taking away their lands and title, both for the main man, but also all their family forever. And so the bill indeed confirmed that the rebels should lose their lands, subject to the king's pardon, crucially, but also casually set aside any complaint about the process that Richard had already been through, actually, of reallocating lands, without, it has to be said, any of the normal process of inquisition and investigation. So it was rubber stamps all round for the good members of Parliament. Something like a 100 people were included in Richard's Act of Attainder. And the normal process was now pretty well established. So, this is how it went. The king attainted as many people as was defensible. They all came back later to the king, begging to be pardoned. And the king graciously did so for the majority, allowing him to charge a fee, or impose a bond for good behaviour. This was both a good way of raising a bit of cash, and holding a sword at the lord's throat for future good behaviour. However, in this case, about 30 or so were clearly incorrigible and asked for or received no pardon. Many of these were already over the water with Tudor in Brittany. So then it got down to the serious business of the titulus regis. For those of you who can bear it, I did a webpage article about the titulus regis, and you can also see the original text there. It's rather fun as it happens. You might call it a little immoderate in its language. What are you talking about? I hear you cry, or at least some of you anyway. So, Titulus Regis, title of the king, was the document that Richard had put through Parliament to establish his right as a king. Actually, he very kindly tells everyone why he's putting this act forward, given that, hate it or loathe it, he is without doubt acting like a king anyway. So the act itself says this. By occasion whereof, diverse doubts, questions and ambiguities being moved and engendered in the minds of diverse persons. So essentially, we're doing this because people are muttering, they're doubting Richard's authority. This act contains, then, that petition that we mentioned in the 1483 episodes, the petition which had been presented to Parliament, which as a result disbarred the Prince's and Clarence's son. So we talked about it very briefly there, but let's talk about it a bit more because it really does not hold back. Richard, let it rip, good and proper. The first message was this. Look, Edward might have been my big brother, but he was also a fat slob incapable of keeping it in his trousers and a thoroughly rubbish ruler. Or, as the original petition put it, delighting in adulation and flattery, and led by sensuality and carnal lust followed the counsel of persons insolent, vicious, and of inordinate avarice, despising the counsel of good, virtuous, prudent persons, such as above remembered. OK, fine, but that's not all it said. There's another two paragraphs of the blood-curdling, toe-curling, and generally buttock-clenching stuff. Oh, go on, that was nice, so let's have some more. Ruled by self-will and pleasure, fear and dread, all manner of equity and laws laid apart and despised, whereof ensued many inconveniences and mischief, as murders, extortions and oppressions, 
namely of poor and impotent people, so that no man was sure of his life, land, nor livelihood, nor of his wife, daughter, nor servant, every good maiden and woman standing in dread to be ravished and defiled. You get the picture. Things weren't good, according to the petition presented to Richard by Parliament, which we knew had pretty much been written by Richard. Now, having dissed his big brother good and proper, Richard moved on to the marriage. That it was all very secretive, and that Edward married a witch, daughter of a witch as well. And anyway, he's already promised in marriage, all that stuff. And then, of course, that Clarence and his blood were attainted. So, please, Richard, be our king. I summarise, of course. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There is also one bit of it, of which some have made great play. It goes like this. And over this, how that the court of Parliament is of such authority, and the people of this land of such nature and disposition as experience teaches, that manifestation and declaration of any truth or right made by the three estates of this realm assembled in Parliament, and by authority of the same, make before all other things most faith and certainty. So, on the basis of this, claims have been made that Richard is the most parliamentary of our medieval monarchs, effectively elected by Parliament. But this would be very much overstretching it. Richard was desperate for any source of credibility and legitimacy, sure. But he was hardly admitting to being dependent on Parliament's authority. There was little doubt amongst anybody in the painted chamber of Westminster Palace where Richard's real authority came from. OK, so that was the business side of things done, much as you'd expect. We then come, though, to the business of the legislation produced by the Parliament. Now, parliamentary legislation, of course, had grown up over the centuries through a process of petitions addressed to the King by the Lords and Commons. And so this is what you do. You go along to Parliament with your desires, and hopefully the desires of your county and borough that you are representing. And in you go to the seething snake bit that was Westminster during a Parliament, fighting your way through the retinues and followers of the great men with their badges and their liveries, no doubt paying exorbitant fees from any innkeeper you care to mention. And a series of petitions would be presented to the King as a petition, or a bill as it was called. And if they were agreed by the Lords, Commons and the King, they became an act, a statute. The long and short of that was that we cannot know which of the laws that came out of Richard's parliaments were initiated by him, and which were initiated by members of that parliament. But hey, why not give Richard credit for all of it? After all, he could veto any of them. Something our current monarch could do in theory, and in practice absolutely could not do. All the current monarch needs is a good pen. Let us start with justice, 
which Richard had declared to be important and in which indeed he had demonstrated his interest. And true enough, there is a rich vein here. Of course, there was pretty much nothing more important than land in days medieval, and various deep and dark bad practices had grown up around it, many of them essentially caused by the fact that we are between times. So in theory, every man and dog that held land in England did so from the king, and the king was the only land owner. But that old feudal purity was long gone, with land changing hands for money all the time. But we're not yet in a full-blooded capitalist world. And so, one of the practices was that you hid from a purchaser various rights and dues, or even that part of the land was entailed elsewhere, or had in fact even been sold already. The Parliament passed legislation to stop this. And that has to be a good thing, capital G, capital T. Now there will be much more clarity about land purchases and the rights entailed on the land. Possibly more sexy was the chapter that allowed bail to anyone accused of a crime. Actually put that way, it sounds monumentally dull, ditchwater territory, but let me explain. We all know, I think, that the medieval system of justice was riddled with influence. The ability of the rich and powerful to tilt the scales of justice their way. Well, one of the tricks, for example, was to get someone accused by an approver to whom you slipped a few groats. The constable turned up at the door of the accused and banged him up. Now, while the accused was fighting his way through the morass of the justice system, you seized and sold his land or possessions. So by the time any right was heard, everyone could be dead, and the likelihood was the poor victim would come to a deal before then anyway. So now this avenue was closed off. Until convicted, the defendant could not be put in jail or his possessions seized. That's a pretty fundamental right. And it's also worth noting that this was not an act calculated to win the support of the rich and powerful, the very men Richard was so desperate to court and win over. So that speaks to some sense of Richard doing what's right rather than what's expedient, does it not? Snaps to Richard. There are other examples of law on justice. So, for example, property qualifications for jurors. But these two I've just talked about are the big two from the Parliament. But before moving on, I should mention another example of Richard's enlightened intervention on behalf of the common man. So, we've mentioned that medieval justice favoured the pitch and rowerful. Another example is that for poor men, or indeed men who'd had their wealth seized, as in the previous example, simply couldn't access the justice system, or they could be too easily blocked by the power and influence of their betters. And in December 1483, Richard had followed up just such a case. He wrote to the city of York, complaining that they'd failed their people. He told them that the poor, who could not afford to go through the courts, should be able to appeal directly to the king and have access to justice for free. Now these were not just words. He established one John Harrington in a court in the White Chamber of Westminster Palace to run the court that would later in Tudor times become known as the Court of Requests. So it's actions like these, together with Richard's well-documented care to reward and support his servants, and intervening cases involving the more powerless of society that have helped his reputation as a good man concerned with justice for all, not just the rich and powerful. 
And look, there is clearly a good basis and some evidence to support that view, even in a reign as short as Richard's. Let me then mention two more bits of legislation from the Parliament of 1484. Firstly, Richard passed an act outlawing benevolences. Now, what on earth is a benevolence when it's at home, I can hear you ask. So let me explain. The practice of forced loans had been common for some time. The king asked the rich man to lend him a fiver. The rich man knew this was not a request and lent him the fiver. And the king, of course, promised to pay him back. We'll talk a bit more about that in a couple of weeks. But Edward thought the whole idea of him paying back the loan was really rather tiresome. So he just went along to some well-heeled person and told him to give him the money. Nothing to do with a loan. And that was what was called a benevolence. Basically, the king telling people to give him some money. Now, this is otherwise known as, mm, let me think about that, uh, oh, taxation. But hey, I hear you say, hey, hang on a second, surely only Parliament could authorise a tax. Good point. So Richard's act of banning the practice of benevolences was very well received indeed. Now, as it happens, Richard himself had to resort to forced loans on quite a wide scale in preparing for Henry's invasion. But he did never resort to benevolences. He always promised to pay them back. The second area was a whole tranche of commercial acts passed in the Parliament. Now, let us not beat around the bush. Actually, most of these were pretty xenophobic. Under pressure from the all-important merchants of London, especially the merchants of London, actually, but not exclusively the merchants of London, Richard imposed a series of duties on foreign merchants, essentially protectionism. Nothing to praise Richard about here, but it's interesting, actually, that Richard specifically acted to exclude books from the Act. He was far-sighted enough to see the importance and potential of the new printing industry, which we really must talk about sometime, and Richard took action to protect its growth. So, going pretty well, I hope you'll agree, Richard's reputation is looking much healthier than it had. Parliament closed with the traditional grant by Parliament of the custom dues for the length of Richard's rule, which was pretty traditional by now. Less traditional was that Richard had all the lords and commons gather to swear loyalty to his son, Edward of Middleham, as his heir. This was, as I say, less traditional, but it was hardly extraordinary. Edward IV had done the very same thing, for example. But I guess you can read into this some evidence of Richard's insecurity and need for legitimacy of his reign. So then, in search of good King Richard, we might then consider what kind of ruler he was. Once in power, did he simply revel in his position and power and have lots of hot baths with smelling salts and all the rest of it? Or did he follow up his stated intent to rule wisely and rule well? It's a bit tricky to judge a ruler on a couple of years, but a few points are worth making. Firstly, Richard looked and acted like a king. Like Edward, he lived in high state and maintained an impressive court. His coronation was an impressive event. The investiture of Edward of Middleham at York as Prince of Wales would have cost more than Kevin's sheepskin jacket. The analysis of his bones, interestingly, shows that in his later years his diet improved and changed. More expensive items like fish and game, more wine... Ah, I hear you exclaim, here it is, the tyrant and usurper enjoying the wages of his sin and ill-gotten gains. 
Well, if any of you out there are talking about the wages of sin and so on, actually this stuff probably plays the other way round. It plays to the requirement of medieval kings to maintain a grand state, to reflect both the magnificence of their kingdom and reflect their credibility as a ruler. There was absolutely no feature in a medieval king creeping around apologetically. And the fact that his diet changed is interesting, suggesting a more frugal lifestyle before he became king. So does it suggest a naturally more frugal instinct in him, since he was surely not short of a bob or two when Duke of Gloucester and could have eaten as he liked? I'm inclined to see in Richard a naturally frugal chap who put aside his natural instincts to do what he needed to do in his new job as a king. One of the insights we get into his court comes from a man called Nicholas von Popelau, a German visitor who was entertained by Richard at his court. From him, we get the only eyewitness description of Richard that was once so important in the debate about Richard's physique. Now, of course, we are much more resolved having found his bones. Now, Nicholas was most impressed. He was impressed by the magnificence of Richard's court. He was impressed by the quality of the music. He was particularly impressed by Richard's graciousness and manner towards him. He spoke about the enthusiasm Richard showed for Nicholas's tales and news of the Turks, pushing against Europe's boundaries, and an outburst by Richard of a desire to defend the borders of Christendom against the infidel. It all speaks of rather attractive enthusiasm, rather boyish enthusiasm and interest and attentiveness. Whether it was genuine or merely behaving as a state leader should, it shows Richard in a positive light. Plus, as an aside, our Nicholas was no pushover. In fact, was seriously uncomplimentary about the English, would you believe? I mean, seriously. On the plus side, and there was something of a plus side, the English were apparently very hospitable and well-off, and English women were very good-looking. But that is where it ended, ladies and gentlemen. The English were show-offs, ostentatious, in the most extraordinary degree, apparently. Even more than the Poles, said Nicholas. Fancy! Even more than the Poles. The English were light-fingered, much given to pilfering. They were more brutal than the Hungarians. I ask all Hungarians to write in and give us some examples of what level of brutality we're talking about here. And the English are more deceitful than the Lombards, northern Italians, basically. And, and, listen to this, their cooking was poor. English cooking was poor. Now hang on. Surely no nation that could invent fish and chips, spotted dick and steamed suet treacle pudding and hey, lardy cake, for crying out loud, could possibly be described as poor cooks. But putting that one to a side is obviously absurd. For the rest of it, well, I leave it for you to decide. Certainly it's a joy and a delight to see national stereotypes alive and well and living in medieval Germany. The records that Richard left also show us an efficient and energetic king. You might remember that we had some discussion under Edward IV about the way that government began to change under the Yorkist kings. Edward himself had been an active ruler, despite his extracurricular activities. But more significant was the move towards a more centralised, direct government. So, to take you further back, we have in the past, if you can believe it, talked about the separation of the king's personal household and the official organs of state. Give you one example. The official institutions of financial management were the Exchequer and the Treasury. Meanwhile, the king, of course, had his own department to look after his own household expenses, called his wardrobe. 
most official business was confirmed and authorised by using the Great Seal of State. While the King's direct decisions and personal decisions were authorised by the impression of his personal privy seal. OK, so does that make sense? Here's a worked example. So, if the king may be in consultation with his council, decided that they really needed to provide jelly beans to the garrison at Calais, they might so ordain it. Away officials would scurry, and the exchequer, after the traditional shaking of heads and sucking of teeth, would put the wheels in motion, authorise the jelly bean purchase or manufacture with the great seal of state. While let us say alternatively, the king was in his privy chamber and suddenly had a fancy for jelly beans. He might simply order them through his chamberlain of the wardrobe and use his privy seal to approve them and have the expense entered on his wardrobe accounts and enjoy the jelly beans at his leisure. But this begins to change under Edward and Richard. Their direct involvement is very much in evidence in the business of government. More decisions of all types are made and approved through the privy seal. Expenses are channelled through the wardrobe. The exchequer bypassed. It was quicker and easier. Through this process, a more centralised modern structure of state began to be seen that would flower under the Tudors. But it also allows us to see more clearly Richard's personal involvement in decision-making, and like Edward and Henry VII after him, his efforts to direct and improve administration, which are impressive. Oakley doakley, so I think it is fair to say that however we assess Richard, into the scales these things need to be weighed. Richard was at least energetic, appeared decisive, looked and acted like a king and understood how a king needed to appear. He appeared to work for the common good as well as for his own interests. So there is that question posed by Virgil at the start of this podcast. Was this just all for show? Well, you pays your money and he takes your choice, essentially. Who can know his motivation deep down? It has to be very difficult indeed to think that Richard wasn't at least well aware of his need to win support in his parliament, for example, and therefore win people over through the quality of his rule. But I, for one, have no great problem in reconciling a man capable of enormous ruthlessness and yet at once ambitious to be a shining example of leadership. I personally am very much prepared to give Richard the benefit of the doubt. Not sure it would matter to Richard, but there you go. So, we'll leave it there with your permission. With this serious stuff done, next week we'll move on to cover the events of Richard's reign, some of the absolutely remarkable events of Richard's reign. Really, the man's a rich vein for podcasters everywhere. Also, I don't know about you, but despite not being 22, I had lots of fun in that voting thing, and I think we should do it again. Plus, it's got to be time to talk about the subject I have been studiously avoiding so hard, and talk about the princes in the Tower. So, here's what I propose. In three weeks' time, on the 4th of September, we'll have another debate and vote on the princes and their fate. Not quite sure how I'll set it up, but watch this space. I then have some donators to thank. Monthly donators Russell, Oak, Chris, Andrea, Joshua, Nancy, Dan. And new donators Nicholas, Philip, Joseph, Simon, Eric, Diane, Brendan, Marjorie, Rene and Wayne. Thank you all very much indeed. And thanks all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.